Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Today, I have the honor of talking with Nancy Levin. The, she is a speaker and coach and the author of three books, Writing for Your Life, Jump and Your Life Will Appear, and her most recent book, Worthy. You can learn more about Nancy on my site. Thank you so much for saying yes to this interview today, Nancy. Oh, I'm happy to be here with you, Barry. So before we dive into the money memoir questions, I love I would love if you would start us off with a snapshot of your family, work, life right now to start us off. Sure. I live between um two homes. I have um a home that I own in Boulder, Colorado, and I have a place in the mountains in Snowmass where I live with my boyfriend of four years. I was previously married for 18 years and have been divorced now for nearly six years. Okay. And mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk and about that hopefully. We will, we yeah. will definitely talk about that because that is a yeah. big piece of my own mm-hmm. money memoir. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I'm not uh not on course to remarry that's not something that's in my that's in my on my desire list <laughs> and i am child free which is very much on my desire list and i quit my day job i was the event director at hay house for 12 years producing all of hay house publishing live events around the world I did that for 12 years. I left that job um, in the summer of 2014. And so for the past two and a half years, I have been out on my own speaking, coaching, working with clients one-on-one and in groups. And I, as you mentioned, have just published my third book this year. And my real mission is around helping people live life on their own terms for the first time. That's really what it comes down to. How can we live in alignment with our truth and desires, standing firmly in our own self-worth and taking actions from there? Mm, So good. Which propelled you to write this whole book on... Yeah. And really, you know, being able to feel your worth and value, claim it, know it, stand in it, on and on. Yes. Can you share a little bit more just about that, and then we'll dive into my specific questions. But, you know, in the last three, in the last two and a half years, have all these three books come out, or did one happen before Um, you left? My first, my first book, writing for my life, which is really a poetic memoir of leaving my marriage, Mm -hmm. that came out in. 2011. Okay. And then in 2014, 
my book, Jump in Your Life Will Appear, came out. And that really is a, it's a step-by-step it's a step by step process for making any major change that I based on my biggest jump at the time, which was leaving my marriage. And then I actually took my own medicine and used my very same 10 steps to leave my job. And I turned my, I turned that book into a coaching curriculum. So I coach around the 10 steps of the jump coaching process. And then Worthy came out in August of 2016. And I did the same with that. I turned that into a coaching curriculum as well. So I also coach the Worthy process. And, okay. Mhm. Yeah. Going. Yeah. 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 Oh, I was just going to say, and and you know, and the and you know, each each of the books has been a a rec, a reflection, a representation of where I've been in my own life and what's been important for me and my own journey. And I am extraordinarily grateful that there is such resonance with others that my story and my experience can serve others in their own lives as well. Yeah, so we'll definitely get into some of the behind-the-scenes stories on that. Let's back up a little bit um, mm-hmm. about your money narrative and your money story. And mm-hmm. I'd love to hear as we begin here just what is the main emotion or a main set or concoction. Sometimes I call it a cocktail of emotions that <laughs> come up for you mm-hmm. around money. I'd love to hear what they are now and what they used to be. Hmm, so good. Um now, I would say, actually, can I do it in reverse? Sure. <laughs> okay, so I would definitely say that, that previously money evoked shame, anger, fear, primarily. Okay. Shame, anger, and fear. Mm-hmm. Can you and give I me a few say, examples mm-hmm. of... of, of even just one good story of any of those, shame, anger, fear? Uh, sure. I mean, I would say that the through line might be that I I grew up upper middle class. I didn't even have any sense of what money was or probably till I went to college and maybe not even till I was living on my own after college. Uh, I was incredibly fortunate. My parents you know, took very good care of us financially. My parents paid for college. They paid for grad school. Um, And it wasn't until I was really living on my own that I had the sense of what money was. So there was even a, there was a sense of shame around having what I experienced so many people going without. And there was a sense of shame that actually I would say was an underlying current among other pieces of my, of my childhood constellation. But there was an underlying piece of shame that had me really draw toward me, the man who I ended up marrying, who's now my ex-husband, who really came from a background 180 degree different than I had in every single way. And so there was this strong drive in me to give him everything that he didn't have everything that I had been entitled to. And that really became an enmeshment around the ways in which I, my people pleasing really, really catapulted into full blown buying of love and buying of peace and buying of buying him things being the way to quell his rage and his control and his own expression of his demons. So I would do anything I could to, you know, quote, unquote, throw money at it because of my own experience of shame of having and him not having had. The perfect dynamic, you know. Of course. (laughs) Polarization. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, So that was, you, you, you've just answered part of two of my next questions, which is okay. more of what did you learn from your family um, positively and negatively, negatively? What were the strengths and what were the challenges? And it sounds like you grew up in an upper middle class, an upper 
class did you say or upper middle class? Upper middle class. Mm-hmm. Upper middle class family. And mm-hmm. were there lessons about money or were, you know, your needs and wants and desires taken care of? Like, do, do you ever, I mean, it sounds like, it says, you said that in your, you didn't even realize until your 20s, like, that you didn't have a relationship to money or what that even meant. Yeah, and I mean, we didn't, I mean, we didn't grow up in a, um, like, with opulence. So it wasn't like there was lots of um, stuff or material things even. Uh, yet I don't ever remember, you know, needing or wanting something and having it not be provided in the regard of material things. Okay. So like whatever, clothes or food or toys or whatever. But, again, it wasn't like, you know, I didn't have ponies or anything, you know, like or whatever. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, to, I mean, this is my, you know, obviously my judgment. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't opulent per se. It was just that our, our, our financial material needs were taken care of. Mm-hmm. If we wanted to do some extracurricular program and it cost money, it wasn't a problem. Like there was never any message to me of like we can't afford that. That wasn't a message. Mm-hmm. And so you got to your 20s and then realized that there are a lot of pieces of your financial education that were missing for you. Yeah? Yeah. That's- and I mean, and I really, you know, I, it's interesting because I was, very and very pragmatic and very practical and very much um, an overachiever and very much um, really wired to work. I mean, that really is my wiring, mm-hmm. wired your, to work. Did your parents pass that down to you, or was that your own independent streak of I need to make my own money, I need to yeah. be autonomous and independent? Very, very much my own. So the other okay. piece of the of my childhood that I'll name because it's actually quite significant is that when I was two years old, my six-year-old brother died, and when I was born, he my I was born into what I call a mourning family, a grieving family, because he was significantly uh, he was significantly handicapped and incapacitated, really couldn't do anything by himself. And a couple of things happened. First is that because it was the early 60s, uh, he, no one detected anything was wrong with him until he wasn't doing the things that babies should do. He wasn't rolling over. He wasn't lifting his head, those kinds of things. And then they started realizing that, oh, something's not right. And then the diagnosis of severe mental retardation. And he ended up actually dying from pneumonia at six. So there was a big imprint on me around his needs being so strong that I better, best for me to be self-sufficient and independent and not have any needs because my parents really needed to pay attention to him. So I really internalized an imprint at a very young age that my parents even, you know, we've talked about this very much as adults. And they absolutely corroborate this being the case, that I was very independent, very headstrong, and very self-sufficient at a very, very young age. And so I know that this, for me, was the beginning of my sense of I, I, I need to take care of myself. And then, you know, sort of ironically, my parents were, of course, parents, but they were very lenient with me. And... I, at a young age, didn't feel comfortable with their leniency. And so I actually began to create for myself a container. So I was very regulated and restrictive, and I made my rules because it's what had me feel safe. Mm. So I was very strict with myself, very strict around what I allowed myself to do and not do, very strict around deprivation and restriction. and. And so that combination, my parents were actually quite free-spirited. <laughs> my father, when I graduated high school, he was like, you should take a year off before you go to college. I'll give you money. You can go travel in Europe. And I was like, no, I have to go to college. Like, I'm on a track. I have to do this. Mm-hmm. 
And it's really funny for me to look back on that now. Uh, right. You're like, oh, no, no right. way. <laughs> right. You know, right. No, God forbid. Right. I'm not, no. Right. Yeah. Right. So right. I'm on a track here and I. Right. I'm on a track here. And so I know for me that it wasn't an external, it wasn't an external force per se. It might have been a reaction to, you know, a resistance to an external force more than it being something that was um, being modeled for me. Right, because a lot of your fin- all your financial needs were taken care of and other needs are mm-hmm. being taken care of. Mm-hmm. But maybe the emotional, you know, psychological weren't, as, mm-hmm. weren't at the level that you really needed because the attention was going more towards your brother and then grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is part of the, the decision you made or, the you know, what you chose. Yeah. Is, exactly. Yeah, I'm I'm going to have a track. I'm going to have boundaries. I'm going to have more of a framework. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to take yeah. care of this on my own. Yeah. So that and was I really, you. Go ahead. Yeah, keep going. I was just going to say, and I really, you know, the other thing for me is that I was really threatened by joy. I was really threatened by fun and pleasure and play and happiness. Like I really thought all of that was for other people. And I really thought all of that was for lazy, irresponsible people. I really, I really grouped that together. And so I, you know, I was on the track of like a straight A national honor society, like the whole thing. And that's, that's really where I began feeling the sense of my own worth and my own value in that kind of achievement and productivity. Mm-hmm. More and from the outside in, yeah. Of course, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, as you said, you were born into grieving, mm-hmm. and it's hard to have joy and pleasure mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, because what starts to, you know, what what I've done, you know, in all the work I've been able to do around this, you know, I start really understanding the survivor guilt uh, component of this. So why should I be happy or why should I feel pleasure if, you know, he died and he cannot? And then I know that there's a whole, you know, there's the whole trajectory even into marrying who I married. You know, I often say that, that, you know, on the day that I met my husband, is it was it was as if he said to me, "Hi, I'm broken," and I said, "Great, I will fix you. I'm yeah. Superwoman. I'm here." And it was really, it was really um, an evolution out of the, my inability to heal a wound in my parents that could never be healed, and trying to find somewhere else to some someone else to heal, someone yeah. else to fix. And so this played itself out um, in a huge way. Um, yeah. You met him. You took him on. And yep. <laughs> you, you know, you were going to pay for everything, buy mm-hmm. everything he wanted or mm-hmm. needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so one of my questions is what is your most challenging money experience and mm-hmm. how did you overcome it? And mm-hmm. or, you know, how did you make it through? Yeah. And is it this journey? Will you will you share more of this marriage I will. and this divorce? Okay. <laughs> I will. It's it's exactly that. So I would say, um, just to set the stage to give a little more context, when my husband and I got together, he worked sort of haphazardly, didn't really want to work, total you know, total wanted to just be a ski bum and wanted to just ride his mountain bike and play and all that and didn't really have a high value for work. And I enabled him to not have to work. So there was that one piece. Into our marriage, as I said, we were to get, it was 18 years. So several years into our marriage, he also then decided that there were things he wanted to do. So he wanted to start this business or that business. So I funded three different businesses that he bailed on all three of them. Hmm. So that, so I was really the sole breadwinner for the significant, for this, you know, for most of our marriage. And as I said, I enabled him to not work and I enabled him to play. So 
when we were going through our divorce mediation, this is really, this is, this is the answer to your question. <laughs> when we were going through our divorce mediation, my lawyer and I had come to the agreement that there would be no maintenance payments. And, you know, he was my, you know, he was still young, able-bodied, talented, able to work. He just was choosing not to. And yet, when we were there in mediation, his, he was in one room with his lawyer, I was in one room with my lawyer, and the mediator came in to let us know that they wanted a significant amount of money per month for seven years. And my lawyer began to negotiate instead of saying, no, our position is no maintenance, he began to negotiate a smaller package. And What was going because, on inside of you? Yeah. I had no idea what to do. It felt like a sucker punch to the gut, but it also, I, it completely launched me into a dissociation. And I had no idea what to do, and so I, in fact, didn't do anything. And I spent the rest of the proceedings agreeing to a settlement that included, among other things, giving him property, paying the mortgage on that property for several years, covering his debts, all because I didn't know how to take a stand for my own self-worth let alone my net worth. Yes. And, you know, you can trust me now when I say that if this was happening today, I would have called a big-ass timeout, you know, and I would right. have been like, dude, you know, we need to re-strategize here. And, um, you know, what the fuck are you doing? Can I say fuck? Oh, you can say fuck. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. You know, and – we didn't agree to this and, you know, all of that. And yet there, and it's shocking to me even now as I'm talking about this, that like none of that was in me at the time. Like I didn't have any of that. Okay. I mean, you didn't have any like stop, time out, body check. No, I just didn't even have the, no, I didn't even have the, I didn't have the, that, um, that language or I don't even remember having that feeling. Mm. The feeling okay. in me was like, what's happening? But, okay, he's the lawyer. He must know what's best. He must know that we can't not pay any maintenance, so he must know that we have to do something here. Like, it was a real turnover of power. I mean, that's really what it was. It was just, okay, you just now, I'm just going to turn my power over to you. You must know better. You're the lawyer here. So I didn't even have the... I didn't even have the full-fledged feelings, let alone the courage to have the articulation of naming any of that. So that, for me, was really the significant, um, the significant turning point, I would even say, around the way that I moved into this conversation about worth that I explore, you know, in this latest book around the ways that our net worth and self-worth are so entwined and they get so entwined from the beliefs and the commitments that we've made at such an early age. I mean, even back to what I was naming around my brother dying and what was started to load in at that time. So how long did it take you and what was the process to walk away from that meeting live the reality of what you just said yes to unconsciously yeah um, and from a check yeah. place disassociated yeah. as you said yeah how long did it take to like thaw out from that and was there a grieving process mm-hmm. all the layers of anger and numbness and um, and the learning, like there's a big yeah. cost to that lesson, and sometimes there big is. Big cost. 
as a dear yeah. friend of mine said to me, which really actually helped me, you know, she said, let's look at this amount of money that you are having to pay as, um, you know, you're paying for a really high-level Ph.D. education. Yeah, yeah. And it was actually helpful to me to think about it that way. Mm. And, and what would you name that Ph.D. education? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Such a great question. Um, yeah, I would name it the self-worth secret. Mm. Mm. That's what I would name it. Mm. And, you know, I would say it took, I would say it took about three years. Thank you. Thank you for being honest with that. that yeah, that I would say it took, sense. it took three years and there were a couple of, um, and I can feel it in my body right now as I'm telling you this. So there was, there were different layers of the way that I had to pay the settlement. Some of it was right away and some of it was monthly over a course of, of um, three years. Okay. And it was um, about eight months shy of three years that my sister, genius that she is, <laughs> said to me, you know, you're paying this, you're paying this sum monthly to him. You, why don't, actually, I wasn't paying it to him directly. I was, it was paying the mortgage on the property that I had to give him. So I was actually paying the bank. Um, he, she, you know, she said to me, you're paying this, this monthly payment that was significant. And she's like, and every month you're like, you know, you hate having to deal with this. Why don't you see if there's any penalty and just paying the rest of the eight months off at this point. And I called the bank and I got someone on the line who was so sympathetic to me. And she said, you know, there actually is a penalty in paying it off, but I, but your story is so crazy that I'm just going to waive the fee. So I paid the, the last eight months in one payment. And that was one of the most liberating experiences for me. I was like, oh, it's like that moment when you don't realize that you have a different choice and then you realize all of a sudden, oh, I have a different choice. I can actually yeah. do something different here. So that yeah. was actually a significant moment of different choice. And then the other, I would say the other major thing that was like one of the last hurdles of the healing around this was that um, was that in the agreement he got the property and I had to pay the mortgage for three years on the property. So again, he got to live free in this property for three years, and then and and it was his, I had to turn the title over to him the whole nine yards, and then after three years of me paying, he was to begin paying the mortgage, and so. I bet I, I bet I bet you know what happened. That of course he did not pay the mortgage on that first month that he was supposed to, which affects my credit. Okay. Okay. Hmm. And then he didn't pay the mortgage on the second month. Hmm. And listen, I'll be really honest. I, from my years of work at Hay House, I have some really incredible friends, and one of them happens to be Susie Orman. So I called her. And I'm like, I was panic-stricken. I was panic-stricken about my credit score. I was panic-stricken about all of that. And, you know, what do I do? Should I, just, should I just keep paying so that I can keep my credit? Should I just pay so that, you know, he has a place to live? Like, I still, like, all of that was still in me. I know, you know. And... It took Susie really saying to me, like, again, in no uncertain terms, like, fuck your credit. And she said those exact words to me. <laughs> you know, she's like, that is not what's important here. What's important is this piece around standing in the truth of what's right for you and what's in your own alignment. And what's, you know, and what's in, most people don't know this about Susie. She's an incredibly spiritual person. You know, what's actually, like, in like in the charts, what's really in the like Akashic records and the charts and the stars of the arrangement and contract that you and he made coming in and 
don't get in the way of what he needs to learn here too. So and that was huge for me. Okay. Okay. I mean, my God, you had a bat line to Sue Zorman. I do. Yeah. You do? And yeah. she didn't say her normal stuff, which we would expect no. if we don't know her that well, which is, mm-hmm. no, this is going to ruin your credit. You know? Right. No. She said, uh, no, she said, not at all. Screw, screw your credit. Fuck your credit. Yeah. And this yeah. is actually what's way more important here. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you, in that moment, you let it go. You let him do his thing and finally release him and let go of you taking care or doing this for him and on and on and on. And that's right. And that was the huge piece because the thing is I had done so much work on myself from the time that I left that mediation room to who I was, you know, at the, at the point where my payments ended that he actually expected me to be the same person that I was. Yeah. Yeah. And was relating to me as if I was the same person. So there was nothing in him that prepared him for me actually saying, I'm done. And what ended up happening is he didn't pay. The condo went into foreclosure. I lost this beautiful condo that I bought in Telluride of all places. And the bank, the bank took it back, and it was a hit on my credit. And you know what? I'm here, whatever it is, three, I guess it's three years later now since the last payment was made, over three years. And um, big deal. Like really big deal. Huge, huge deal. Did you go out and celebrate? Did you go out at, at, you know, when you paid off that eight months early and it was the end of that three years? And was there a marker? Was there... You know, I'll tell you like, that. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you that that wasn't the celebration for me. The celebration for me was that after I paid all this money, and I be I had been able to then begin saving, and I actually got like a, I went a little overboard into like hoarding, so I was doing the equivalent of like saving money under my mattress. Like I didn't want to. I didn't mm-hmm. want to invest. I didn't want to gamble. I didn't want to do anything. I'm like, this This is hard-earned. I'm hanging on to this, and I just want to watch the number get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, a, a friend of mine had actually suggested I speak to a financial advisor. I was under the impression you had to actually have, like, a billion dollars to talk to a financial advisor. I had no idea that, you know, you didn't have to have, like, tons and tons and tons of money. So I end up talking to a financial advisor who said to me, what you're doing, just sort of hoarding and stockpiling money, is the equivalent of planting frozen vegetables, expecting them to grow and feed you. Wow. And it was, I mean, that was the most incredible advice. So I explained to her, like, I literally think the stock market is going to Vegas. I think, like, I, I can't, I can't, I, I'm, I don't have the makeup for the risk especially not having had to pay all this money out and now having to, um, you know, having to take care of myself. And what she actually had me do, had me, I mean, had me see was that a really great investment would be paying off the mortgage on the condo I own in Boulder. And I would never in a billion years have imagined that that would even be something to do or like a great thing to do with a chunk of money and that was the celebration for me that I was able to you know that I was able to pay off my home in in Boulder and even after everything I've been through like and it was funny because when I went in it to like to to pay it off the guy who, you know, took my check was like, oh, my God, you, like, you're living the American dream. You just bought your home, <laughs> you know. And, and what, did you like, wow. and what did you feel? Yeah, what did you notice? How did that feel to you? It was so incredible to me. It was so incredible to me to really understand that, to, that it, was, it was a significant, it was a declaration of my, of my independence and of my self-sufficiency, and of being able to take care of myself. And I will say, even though, like, I'm not 
super big on the words like security and safety because I don't really know 100% what I believe about either one of them. But there is this feeling. I actually, I called my very dearest friend in the world, Kelly, (laughs) and I said, Kelly, we will always have a home. (laughs) No matter what happens in our lives, we will always have a home. I love it. That's what I I said. And that's how it felt. Like no matter what what happens. Yeah, yeah, you have this home. You have, it's paid mm-hmm. for. It's paid for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After all of that, after all of that. Yeah. So yeah. how is your your relationship now of four years different mm-hmm. in how you relate to money and each other and power and taking mm-hmm. care of self and each other compared to your previous one? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because I've definitely had the pendulum swing the other way completely. Um, our money is separate, and I, um, I feel attached to it being that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I am very conscientious about the ways in which I choose to bring money into the partnership, into, into shared reality. Mm-hmm. And... I am, am also, I'm in, I'm actually like in real time as we're talking, I'm, the pendulum is slowly swinging, is slowly swinging back to an equilibrium where I'm not feeling um, so threatened or not feeling so protective okay. or not feeling so, um, this sort of the hoarding piece where I'm actually feeling um, it's not so much I'm an incredibly generous person, so I wouldn't say that it's, that, 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 that it's generosity that's coming back in. What I would say is what's coming back in is a way to be in relationship with money, in relationship with money being a factor in our relationship and not have it be about checks and balances all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Not keeping score. Yeah. And that's a journey unto And itself. it's hard. It's yeah, hard. I, I hear honest. that that's yeah, that that's it's working. Really, okay. It's really hard. Mm. Yeah. So would you say if I would say, you know, money is an ever-evolving journey. It's something we're always updating and fine-tuning every year, mm-hmm. right? We're always working on it practically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. What's one of the biggest areas that you're working on right now? Is it this in your in your relationship? I would say the biggest, yeah, the biggest, um, the biggest area that I am working on is how to be how to be true to myself and be in relationship. Hmm. Okay. How to that's be, about money and not about mm-hmm. money. Yeah. That's about money and not about money. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Because there's actually, there's, there's a part yeah. of me that's still, that still like holds, there's still like a part of me that's like, um, this would all be so much easier if you were just on your own and alone. Okay. Like I have that in me right. stronger than yeah. I have in okay. me the wanting to be in relationship. And yet mm-hmm. I also know that I'm choosing relationship because this is where the growth is going to happen. This is, my, this is the path to growth for me. Because I'm actually much happier being a hermit, being alone, antisocial, doing my own thing. I'm not really a very social person. I'm not a community person. I'm not a group person. I'm very, <laughs> I love that you're being I'm, so honest I'm about not. all of this. I, it's true. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I, have, I have a very, very core group of people with whom I'm close, none who live anywhere near me, and that's fine too. Yeah, yeah. That's fine too. Hmm. So it takes – it, it takes a lot for me to actually, like, bring myself fully to to intimate, intense engagement, which I'm in right now. And, of course, I'm, in, I'm involved with a man who, like, 
absolutely wants depth of connection and, you know, like a constant communication and, you know, and he's awesome and he, it's challenging and triggering as all the best relationships are. <laughs> but in different ways, in different ways than the, the year past. Oh, right. totally yeah. different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So a few final things. There's there's about yeah. ten, 10 questions that are circulating, but yeah, um, I know we're coming to the end. So let's see. Um, give me one final piece here on money legacy for you, which for me means it's about the past and healing that, understanding it, bringing awareness to it, which you've done so much of um, around money. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's around present, you know, what do we want to be working on, which you said. It's about the future. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and thinking about the future, thinking about our legacy. Um, please share a bit about that. I mean, I'm, I'm swirling with questions around gender for you. Um, you know, in your first marriage, everything was kind of reversed, traditionally, you know, yes, according to traditional roles. Yes, very much reversed. Roles, very right? much. Completely yep. reversed. Yeah. So, and then there's a question about you know your book worthy and value. So, talk to me about, and then I have one more to complete. But talk to me sure. about money legacy, and what that means to you in the context of being a woman, being an independent woman, um, and 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 working with value and worth at this point. Yeah, I guess you know, um, I'm just gonna say what's coming to me, and I hope it is. I hope it fits. Um, because I, I notice, like, I don't it's, – it's hard for me to relate to the word legacy, and maybe it's just because I don't have kids or something. So it's, I notice that, like, legacy is not – is a hard word. Um, but I would say that maybe even in the way of being a teacher or my work or something like that, um, mm-hmm. that the legacy piece for me comes around my, um, my, my belief and my desire for others to understand that we actually have a tremendous capacity to receive and we stand in our own way of that. So the legacy is really around liberation, around liberating ourselves to actually have all that we all that we desire and to really believe that we're capable of creating what we're most committed to in our lives, that we're capable of having that vast capacity of all that's here for us to take part in. Because I think that so many of us get complacent around the scraps and the crumbs. And we don't really go for the big juicy steak or the big juicy tofu. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't go for it, and we don't go for it because we don't think we're worthy. We don't think we're deserving. We think others. We think that the, that it's a zero sum game. That if others get, we go without, or if we get, others go without. Or I'll make sure everyone else has what they have what they need, and then I'll just take what's left over, if even anything. So I think, I think that that's sort of the legacy I, I want to leave behind, this embodiment of knowing that we're, we're worthy of all that we desire, that our worthiness isn't, you know, we have to unhook our worthiness from someone else's wagon, <laughs> you know, that we are, we are worthy in, inherent, that our worthiness is just inherent within us and we are worthy and deserving of all that we desire. Beautiful, beautiful. And, you know, the scraps or feeling the scraps or feeling like we could only experience that, you know, you and I both see it can, someone can be experiencing that no matter what economic background they've come from, no matter how much or how little money they have right now. So that's that, that's something that someone can feel in their lives you know, with money or without, you know. So you're speaking about something separate from that, but it's mm-hmm. all related. It's certainly related right. to, yep. you know, how we charge, how we 
um, negotiate, how we create business models, how we go after the life and the work, you know, that we really want to be doing, all of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So here's my last question, and this is a question that um, I've been asking every Money Memoir this round. I did the series three years ago with a different set of questions, and this round I wanted to bring this piece in, and usually it comes up earlier in our interview, but I don't want to leave without it. And this is okay. Um, it, it's about lineage, and it's about ethnicity. And mm. it's such, um, a, you know, a place, of tension and pain and some beauty, you know, in our culture right now, especially in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I'm wanting to hear from everyone what their lineage is and ethnicity and to share if they feel that there's anything about that that has given them strengths and challenges about their money story, their money relationship that they've learned from and had to overcome or um, and I always share what mine is, and then I, I'd love mm-hmm. to hear from you. So, so, so mine is that I always identify or describe myself as being Jewish first. It's mm-hmm. my more than a religion; it's my culture, it's my ethnicity. Um, mm-hmm. All my family escaped from Russia, which is really Ukraine now. Um, mm-hmm. We're second generation. Um, and I grew up middle class, but I, which you already mentioned what class you grew up in, but I also, my parents came from middle class and working class. Um, and I'm starting to say I'm white, even though that's very uncomfortable for me. And I'm not sure if I even want to be saying that, but I've mm. been saying that because um, I've been interviewing a really diverse group of folks, mm-hmm. which feels like an incredible honor for me. And and as I'm, you know, when I think of people, I think of someone as African American, or I think of them mm-hmm. as um, uh, Japanese American, or you know, I've never said black or white, or I've never talked about skin color. But I wanna, I'm just bringing it up because mm-hmm. it, it's 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 something I'm reading about a lot. It's something I'm researching. I'm wanting to make sure Art of Money is as diverse and inclusive and honors everyone right and and honors mm-hmm. everyone everyone's lineage so i'm stumbling a yeah. bit because i'm still really figuring this out and so i'd love to hear from you nancy what your lineage is or ethnicity and if you've ever had any insights or drawn any conclusions about how that shaped your money story your life so it's interesting you know i i'm going to be honest like i've never thought about this um, so I'm Jewish, all, like all long line, all Jewish that I know of, um, and I'm white, and I'm noticing that um, I absolutely associate a a privilege with that, as well as. You know, there's all these different stereotypes around Jews and money. And, you know, like, run, you know, we can run the gamut on them. And I noticed, though, that there's something that I'm now maybe associating to being Jewish, which I have not before, because as I said, I've never really talked about this, that, like, has had me know that, like, I can do whatever I want. Like, I can make it happen. I'm resourceful. I'm resilient. Like, I can, I, can just, I can just get it done. I can make it happen. I think that's a way in which I've seen the role. That's, like, the way I've seen the role model in some way. Let me ask you, because Jews have lost everything in so many places and then start again, and create from nothing or that that's is that that's my story yeah yeah i guess okay. yeah i guess that's what i would say so i mean i guess sort of it's like the twofold of being like the chosen ones quote unquote you know it's like that sort of piece and then the piece of yeah i mean the piece you know from the holocaust or from you know whatever like the 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 resiliency that resiliency and resourcefulness is what i relate to i suppose in my 
Judaism. And like you were saying, I don't necessarily relate to my Judaism in terms of religion. I mean, I, I have in my life. I was bought mitzvah and the whole thing. But um, now it's very much, I actually relate to it as my, as my heritage. Like if someone says, what are you? I say Jewish. They mean, no, that's your religion. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's, I'm Jewish. So the resilience and the resourcefulness mm-hmm. is something that has come through that line, yeah. through your lineage and your heritage. Yeah, yeah, that's what I see. Yeah, thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So, Nancy, thank you so much for being brave and willing. I know this is part of your work as well. So It is, but this was really, it was, I, love, I love where you went with this and I love all the things that we explore. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I mean it's it's even with that, you know, I've had some people finish the interview and go, that was fun. You know, that was really fun, very and then other people go, that was tender. That was pretty vulnerable, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um but since we share this work, I I knew that this would be comfortable terrain, but you really shared some really real, honest um stuff. Thank you for joining me with this Money Memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps, and blends therapeutic, body-based practices with real-life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the Art of Money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.